Oh, these are all my friends and family. You guys are saps. I love you, though. So handsome. <laughs> Turn it off in soon. Um, thank you. It is like coming home, you guys. i got to take these off because you're blurry. Um, thank you for coming out. These are the people who love me and whom I love. And you're here to support me, and I really appreciate it. And as diverse as the architectural community, former students in the architecture, to, to college friends, to LA friends, to neighbors, and you know, you're all to uh, relatives and in-laws. So you're all here tonight, um, and I deeply appreciate it. And I hope you enjoy my book. I want to say thank you to Skylight for putting this event on. You guys are champs. They're the, you know, they're an oasis in the middle of, you know, let's call it a quasi-desert. Uh, they've stuck with, uh, they've stuck with the program with the tremendous resilience and integrity for a long time, and, and LA appreciates you, and I do too. Um, I also want to thank, uh, I get this stuff out of the way, and it's really quite meaningful. I want to thank my publisher, um, Tyson Cornell and Rare Bird Lit. Um, these guys got a lot of, uh, you know, cojones to publish this book, which I think is qualifies as a transgressive novel in this day and age. Um, I can't see, I see a lot of people probably shying away from it. They dove into it. They're embracing it and embracing me. That's quite something. Um, I also want to say there's a big omission in this book, and I will correct it in the second edition. But this book is dedicated to my best friend, Ray Plaza. But because of some strange, um, my, my problem, my fault, I was in a crisis mode at this time. I didn't get the message off to the publisher to be able to dedicate it to him. But when the second printing occurs, Tyson, I hope we can arrange to have that in there. So the book is dedicated to you, Ray. Ray, right here. Who's my, old, who's my oldest and dearest friend. So I think that covers the basis, naturally. You know, I'm thankful to my friends and family for, for supporting me through this all. Um, the book is a tough one to read. I have a, a kind of a dyslexia. It's not, not kidding. So I have to read. I'm going to try to read slowly and not like get the words mangled up. It's already a complex sentence structure in a lot of the book. Um, but I think it's playful, and you know, I hope to, hope to entertain you guys. Um, I think it's going to become pretty clear what the book's about, so I don't really need to introduce it that way. I'd just about given up and determined to leave for good this bestial excuse for a metropolis. I'd even gone so far as to put down a security deposit for an apartment 220 miles away in Fresno, the so-called armpit of California, when Lipschitz out of nowhere texted next Tuesday, Mart Mall, 1215. Immediately, I was sucked into the light of the lantern, a magic lantern that had seduced, addled, and nearly incinerated me, just as it had seduced, addled, and incinerated millions of people before me, and would continue to do the same to tens of millions more well into the future. The realization that I was merely one among countless dreamers, the worst sort of hypnotized American moth, 
tumbled in from out of nowhere and not a serious screenwriter born and bred in Los Angeles, alas, made me feel at once sick to my stomach and part of a community, even a kind of ravaged diaspora now spinning in small, cynical circles everywhere in the world. I had arrived an hour early because I wanted some time alone to gather my thoughts and to put some of them aside, especially those having to do with my great friend and so-called L.A. novelist, John Hirschman, who had moved to Fresno a year before as if to light a path for me there. But maybe it wasn't such a good idea to arrive early, I now thought, because it was possible that Lipschitz was staying at the hotel, industry standard for Angelinos who want to decompress or conduct business or other sordid affairs, away from the prying eyes of family or associates, and would spot me sitting at the bar on his way in or out from one or another of the Chateau's little hideaways. My early arrival would signal a damaged state, which reflected my state precisely and the reason it concerned me at all. An early arriving writer clearly had time on their hands, and a writer with time on their hands was by simple logic low in demand. <laughs> Ample reason for Lipschitz to take ruthless advantage of me instinctively and indeed justifiably as a shark takes advantage of sea life bleeding. I could just see him spotting me, spotting me waiting at the chateau and veering aside to put in a quick call to one or another of my fellow riders to gather intel. What's the 411 on blank these days? And one of my cohorts saying that as far as they knew, I was no longer with CAA and that they'd heard not sure if it was true. I was fairly depressed and had even given thoughts of, thought, given thought of moving away and that maybe they were wrong. I hadn't landed anything in over five years. In any case, I'd already determined my bottom line for the script, which by even currently industry standards was debasingly low. And since I no longer had an agent, I'd be able to hang on to another 10%. So the amount I received wasn't so much in question as was control of the product. What I most wanted, I suppose, was money for the rewrite, because income, any income at this point, would allow me to postpone or shelve altogether my move to Fresno that I had already wholeheartedly, or so I thought, embraced. Prima facie. The move would seal my fate as a screenwriter because any move to a California county outside of perhaps Santa Barbara was a virtual sign of retirement. And a move to Fresno was tantamount to checking into a convalescent facility. <laughs> the, the career equivalent of one of those horrifying stucco structures with rattling window fans and foul-smelling hallways in cottage cheese ceiling dining commons where Jamaican nursing assistants three times a day convey in the human refuse for their turkey sandwiches and grapefruit in a plastic cup. <laughs> 
I would have to quickly cancel my 30-day notice, a potential problem as my manager, a once upon a time successful commercial actor doing mostly sports ads, tennis rackets, golf balls, running shoes, nearly peed from glee when I told him I was moving out of his basement room, what I called even to his face, the dungeon. For years, he'd earned a tidy living from residuals, but then the grace set in, in our interminable son's toll, showed on his still ridiculously handsome face, and now all that bottled-up ego went into answering complaints, collecting rent, vetting potential tenants, and occasionally booting them out. Bottom line, there was nothing he relished more than a groveling renter especially a once-upon-a-time successful screenwriter. And he was near jizzing to have me out of there so that he could clear the way for another beautiful, if not super beautiful, actress. And yes, it should be one word. As super beautiful is the status of these ontological women, the very essence of their being. And also, I think it's fair to add, in most cases... Their very eventual nothingness. <laughs> Wouldn't it be sweet to not rescind, but rather leisurely convey to the once upon a time that I would still be leaving, not to Fresno, as I had absentmindedly mentioned, but rather to a house I purchased in, say, Los Feliz, as my most recent script was just picked up for a sum obscenely large, goes without saying. The beautiful waitress, were there any other kind here? Honestly, even homely women in L.A. managed a kind of nebulous beauty. Finally came by and took my order. Martini with a lemon twist, why not? How I would relish depositing such glorious news at the once upon a time's doorstep, and how I would relish more or less saying doing the same to half a dozen other acquaintances and, fr and frankly friends who one by one, as my career took on ventilator status, no longer came by or even called in fear of picking up the dreadful virus that was ravaging them as well, but not so immaculately and swiftly as it was ravaging me because, let me be clear, while most of them were just victims of a sea change fiasco affecting the entire industry, my victimization was also self-inflicted. After selling three movies three years in a row, my last, The Reddest Storm, about the 19th century Belgian King Leopold and his genocide of the Congolese, an Academy <coughs> nominee for Best Original Dramatic Screenplay, I had a reach by any industry standard A-list status. Clubs and dinners and flying here and there to festival major or minor made no difference in lodging and quaffing five star and finally returning to a gorgeous modernist house on stilts in the hills with any number of equally gorgeous and streamlined women. It was an impressive run of fun. And finally, I took my accountant's advice and put a little money away in real estate. It two-story tutor in Hancock Park instead of throwing gobs of it forever into decadence and rent. <laughs> this would be 2007. 
and my ruin. Six years later, I was wondering whether my vertically blue striped cotton shirt Macy's spring men's circa also 2007 would date me in my decline and thrilled that I had found a parking space. What a luxury on sunset in front of the chateau, bypassing the ungodly parking fees of $30 a day, which turned into a day after merely three hours. What I believed at the time was going to be about right for my visit with Lipschitz. I now reviewed my plans for refreshing my meter. Ten minutes before the one-hour countdown, citing irritable bowel for a Jewish screenwriter's incredible malady, I would excuse myself and race down to sunset and stick another eight quarters into the mocking mouth of the machine. Mocking because I no longer even had a credit card to swipe into its new and improved credit card taking format and make my way back up, pausing in the chateau's gorgeous bathroom to rinse any sweat from my face. I worried that lip would detect that I can no longer muster the schoolboy enthusiasm that is a prerequisite for striking a Hollywood deal because the moment one slips into pessimism much less cynicism the moment one can no longer muster the gusto of the bubbliest world class bullshitter is the precise moment the entire apparatus moves away from you in loathing as there is nothing more alarming to the industry, more shattering to the core, than someone who cannot muster the necessary enthusiastic unctuousness to keep the whirly gig spinning. Just the right zesty insight or clever guffaw or wisecrack to emoliate the egos of the magic lantern wunderkinds. Across from me now sat a super skinny guy, late 20s, with a straggly beard in sunglasses and Fred Siegel-ish white linen shirt. Beneath his yellow slacks with a high-end cottony, satiny sheen, he wore yellow socks and aqua blue burlap fabric shoes. Crossing one skinny leg sharply over the other, he continued on his cell phone rather loudly, as if to convey that so accustomed was he to owning whatever space he found himself in that he considered even the bar at the Marmont his. I listened, not particularly because I wanted to, to his discussion with his associate about how X was very interested and how X had looked at the script and wasn't joking around and how he'd been waiting for a part like this and felt that it was very much what his career needed at this point. But the deal was X wanted a part of the action and that, that was the big question here. 
whether part of the action was on the table and that that was what the person on the other line needed to think about, really consider seriously. Because he had the feeling that X was being serious. No bullshit involved here. And that they needed to get back to X pronto because word was, he was considering another project. Not really the kind of thing he wanted right now in his career, especially after the butt-fucking, let's be honest, he took with Z. But still, he was considering it. And that you know how things go. One day, he'd be considering it, and the next day, he'd be locking the other deal in. So really, seriously thinking about what slice of the pie we might give X on the back end. The hot air of the conversation was going of its own internal combustion, apparently, because he kept turning the issue over and over as though its sheer recitation was intoxicating, like he was sticking his dick into a new orifice of the same old guttered Hollywood whore each and every time he said it this way and that. Listening in on all this hyping and jockeying, much less irritated and impressed me than it depressed me because I realized above and beyond everything else that again, I no longer had the enthusiasm to orgy thus and Lipschitz was bound to gauge it as accurately as Geiger counter measures radiation in a room. When I came up from this thought, the angular young man was recoiling from whatever it was his associate was now ramming into his ear, his boyish face all full of boyish worry. And when he finally spoke again, the voice had turned boyish too. Okay, man, sorry, I just, uh, you know, I just want to lock this deal in. And, and yeah, 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 hey, take your time, we're good, we're good, no worries, hey, cool. Hey, we'll talk when we talk. There it is. He's been pissed on. The fear that he'd pushed too hard was writ all over his pretty, straggly, bearded face. The one hit, or more likely one bunt wonder, was taking a deal that was a complete hypothetical, if not an out-and-out fantasy way more seriously than he'd earned the right to. Suddenly he stood all cornered and concerned in the skinny little nobody that he was all along in his Fred Sieglish outfit came into wretched relief. I nodded politely when our eyes met, but he was in no shape to respond as he fumbled for his iPad that he left on the side table and tramped away through tepid puddles of his associate's piss. It's supposed to be funny, you guys. God, you're sitting there all like serious. I think it's funny. <laughs> she gets it. <laughs> so they tell me I should only read for like, uh, what was it, two, 20 minutes? That seems like awful short for people who came all the way from Los Feliz. <laughs> um, so the book is obviously... Uh, 
Um, partly biographical, <laughs> partly autobiographical. As most of you know, I did move to Fresno and um, did have, um, do have the main character is, hey, my Kelly, the main character is John Hirschman, who's, who uh, was here in L.A., lived here in L.A., was a, had a production company here acting in L.A., and at some point he, um, he got sick and tired of it, and he called me and said, you know, where should I move? I said, move to Fresno, man. Fresno's cool. Fresno's hip. Fresno's got some shit going on. But what I didn't expect that he would actually move to a farmhouse in the middle of the country. And so... Um, I was, you know, I farm in Fresno, so I was there a couple months out of the year anyway. But the first time I went up after he had moved to Fresno, I saw him in the farmhouse. And he was, he was farming. He had a hundred different kinds of fruit and vegetables. He was canning. And it was a crazy scene. It was real. And so I guess that whole experience just got to me. And I began, when I moved to Fresno, I began to think about, you know... What kind of book can I write that would that would honor this strange sojourn that he made to a place that he had no familiarity with, yet do justice to the city that I had left behind? So that was kind of the impetus behind the book. Um, the section I read you is, um, you know, the beginning of the book. So it's setting up a lot of the character. You know, it's got some information that you need to read through the book, but. The section I'll read you now is the author, the narrator sitting waiting for at the chateau. The, I'll just tell you, the whole book is he's waiting at the chateau. So he never moves from the chateau. Um, he, he moves from the bar to the restaurant, but he doesn't move beyond that. So it's all happening in his head at the chateau. And um, at one point, he's, um, you know, he's um, reflecting on you know, his own hubris as a writer and as an Angelino, thinking he was above it all. Now this part is a little hot. There's some really hot parts of the books. I won't read that here because I'm not sure what would happen to me once I walked outside. Um, And this part's pretty hot too, but it's a little bit more, uh, a little softer. Um, I've been called, the, the, in the one review that's come out so far, the, character, the main narrator has been called a world-class racist. So you'll have to make the decision for yourself, but um, I think that, uh, that I'm kind of, the book's kind of uh, going to be a magnet for that kind of criticism. I was never a talent sitting in a skybox looking down upon the would-bees that had come from all over the world to seek their fortune of fame, but rather I was a simple lucky fuck that had fallen to the right relationships with the right idea at the right time, and that for every excellent script I wrote, there were tens of thousands just as excellent that simply hadn't been noticed for one stupid reason or another. But unlike many of my so-called colleagues, I had nothing to fall back on when my career came crashing down. They leaned on their wives or resurrected their family life or resorted to spiritual renunciation and reflection for remedy. Where once they barely knew what school their kids attended, now they were all about their kids, taking them to the zoo or the Griffith Observatory or Yada classes, and then out to Langer's for Selatkas, where before they barely poked their yarmulkes into temple, except for the high holidays, now they were seriously considering a kosher kitchen.
<laughs> Gearing up for your bar, bar bat mitzvah? Aren't these the best? You have to grate the potato just so. Remember how Bubba did them? And how's Algebra 1? Soccer turning out good? Scoring goals? Still friends with what's-her-name? Sarah? Samantha? Shasta. And that was in the fourth grade, Dad. The kid's clearly on to this oddball that has suddenly tuned in after years of tuning out, during which they'd sailed far and wide, along naturally with the wife, to some of them on some seafaring carnival with jumbo playstations and fusion sushi and Bikram yoga, a virtual health and pleasure boat that has now hit the Great Barrier Reef. Home to the great white shark. <laughs> Even should these Hollywood execs have amassed a small fortune, enough to support their lifestyles in perpetuity, even if they still enjoyed regularly quieting in that vaguely occult town of Ojai, or spoiling on the succulents of the most exotic heirloom squash, simply getting news of, simply getting wind of news, even the most unexciting, much less variety worthy. For instance, that so-and-so just got a six week trial run for a mini-series on uh, oxygen. Even this was enough to jumpstart a gear in their heads that in a matter of hours could grind two years worth of Kabbalah studies into mush. <laughs> Now that nice two-story tutor they'd bought in Calabasas to get away from it all suddenly seems like a catastrophic decision. Now that super-sized treehouse way up in Topanga feels like a suffocating outpost in the heart of Waziristan. Now all that devilish maturity and gray handsomeness, a la George Clooney or Ted Turner, the personification of know-how and money and networks, shows in the mirror like plain old flesh worn thin and out, the most simple animal sagging under the pressure plate of time. Now the quick coffees with up-and-coming riders were all alpha-mailed up. They might sermonize on where to hang out, what to do to get into the loop, who's the mensch who'll thump on your heart until it goes limp. A lot of it looks like a kid's theater rehearsal with adults watching dully from stiff wooden chairs wondering when it would end. Now I was the one watching and apparently rehearsing at the same time. How embarrassing. The way I skulked through the chateau's parking garage, thinking surely one of the valets would recognize me. How embarrassing that I was both relieved and vaguely depressed that they did not. Stepping into the chateau, its discreet and serene grandeur hushed me in what approximated a religious way, so much so that I stood for a spell in a spell, watching the old-fashioned elevator dial go from level three to level four, before my outcast from that place came back to me with a wallop.
The long leisurely afternoons and splendid nights I'd spent there with so-and-so insouciantly splitting 300 bottles of single malt, ordering whatever and occasionally pausing to admire whatever space I happened to be getting sloshed in. Each its suddenly angelic yet unostentatious own. Each a study in how rich people content with their lot, contentedly live as they appointed their chambers from the first to outlast a thousand plebeian jags. Having signed off on bills with playboyish aplomb, I would naturally make my way up to one of my favorite rooms, rooms with any number of striking women who would warm to and presently come to a froth in the comfy romanticism of its quarters, its quaint retro kitchens and throwback throws and softly creaking hardwood floors. And spotless, but also lived in and even loved in couches. The whole concept of it like being at home, not in reality. The way we imagined it once upon a time was while being away. Yes, the secret of the chateau was to make it appear that nothing had changed when in fact nothing had remained the same. L.A. has always been like this, I'd hear over and over again from any number of transplant idiots or self-liars, myself included. As anyone who lived in the city long enough knew, though traffic had always been ugly, it was mostly so during rush hour. Now rush hour is every hour, sometimes well until the early a.m. It now took epic human resolve to drive from La Brea to downtown on the order of some heroic voyage demanding years and arduous training, especially tooled armor, and above all else, the kind of steely courage that in the mythical days of old was required for dragon slaying. <laughs> Driving these streets, we find ourselves passive and forbearing as these Hindus born into the most debased castes or twitchy and sadistic as any tattooed hillbilly strung out on crack. <laughs> Untold spiritual resources and force of will were needed to check this simple bodily longing to move forward. This violence to any common and physical sense of what travel should involve since the dawn of time when we stood on our God-given two feet required a thousand mantras to suppress, a thousand mantras to help our simple humanity cope with the paradox that some, such mind-boggling technology as a Tesla has effectively turned us into cows, sad cyborg cows, dumbly waiting to get prodded through a bottleneck on the way to the slaughterhouse. <laughs> with no 
way around or out, not even a simple rock to sit on until the river calmed or cave to dip into as the windstorm passed. No, this was an artificial and relentless degradation by design, one that we'd been made to suffer impassively as ruminants. It's gotten to the point that at certain hours, on certain days, you might as well be one of these boxcar Jews heading mercilessly for Treblinka. (laughs) The function of the chateau was to serve as a counterpoise to the abattoir. Yes, it was a small, nourishing hideaway from the dripping and drooling pharmaceuticalized herd. An Everest in the face of L.A.'s effinescent spinning of cultures made to evaporate curlicues. The very curlicues the stars hold up here in a kind of sumptuous bomb shelter, let's even say, relied upon for their sustenance and survival. I chuckled sardonically at the cool decadence of the guests for whom just then even progress seemed superfluous, as though history had closed her books and all that remained was to luxuriate in the weird aura left in the human tumult's wake. You've been part of an apocalypse, I thought, but one unfolding in such slow motion, it's been almost beautiful to watch. A cinematic masterpiece, dazzling as a thousand lotus flowers flowering. So that give you a sense of the book. <laughs> um. Welcome home, oh, buddy. No, thank and, you, uh, sweetie. Pump. It's great to see that that Fresno dust hasn't affected yeah. your creativity, <laughs> and that humor is still in you. Thank and you. Uh, I want to present the certificate from the state senator uh, who represents this area, welcoming you back home. Aww. And in this great skylight bookstore here, that's a little gem in this district of ours. Welcome home, and congratulations you, on this amazing. Thank day. you, sweetheart. Thank you, everybody. Hey, pretty good stuff, man. You got to have the Armenian connection. (laughs) Thank you so much. Thank you so much. So that's pretty tense. I think I'll leave it at that. You guys got a feeling for the book, I think. um, And uh, but I will be would be happy to you know take a few questions and 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 uh, our comments. Yes. Um, since I'm not a friend, you know. I yeah, so nice to have you, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> I really? Studied architecture oh, you did. Architects don't really talk, so I'm just wondering. How you <laughs> oh, I'm not an architect. I just okay. I taught at a school. Architects don't talk. Did you guys hear that? My many architect friends here tonight. Um, no, I taught philosophy at a school of architecture. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I'm not an architect, but I have several architect friends here tonight. Um, 
And the book is heavily, um, including Franco, who I did not teach with. And the book is, um, is, a, is heavily seated in architectural culture. Um, the culture of Fresno, represented by Forestier's Underground Gardens. Mimi's uh, written a beautiful piece on the Fresno Fulton Mall, by the way. If anybody hasn't re- read it, you should. In the Fulton Mall. It's set in the Fulton Mall, Forestier Underground Gardens. And, um, and, and that in counterpoise to L.A. architecture. It, it, um, the Hirschman, the main character, is a fanatic about architecture. He's claimed to have visited everything, and he believes that if you can read architecture correct, correctly, you understand the city completely. So he has the mad mission of understanding it. So architecture becomes a major character in place of critique in the book. And it has some rather very hostile things to say about LA architecture, none of which you should, you know, don't, don't think they're my opinions necessarily. Um, you know, the hard thing about writing a book that is so transparently opinionated is that everybody thinks that the author's opinions match perfectly with the narrator. They do, you know, there's a part of me that agrees completely with the narrator. But there's another part of me that, you know, doesn't. But I, when writing the book, I had, to, I had to be him. I had to completely go into it. And so there's some fairly extreme points of view and, uh, and some hot topics, including race, that it gets very hot with. Um, um, but, you know, that's just what you do if you're a novelist. You can't shy away from those things. You have to just do it. You have to go there. Yes? Okay. So, I've always wondered, I mean... A lot of people who work in Hollywood have great educations, you know, Harvard, really good, mm-hmm. Ivy League. It's surprising how yeah. well-educated yeah. people are. And I'm just wondering, what's your take on why everybody becomes the way they are there? And it's so so different than any other, like Wall Street or... Well, probably every, every city. Has, I can be really stupidly academic about it, but I think it's a mystery. <laughs> You know, really, I think that's kind of why I wrote the book, because I think there's something that we all love about L.A. that we can't put our fingers on, but even something larger about L.A. that we hate that we can't put our fingers on, you know? And it's just, that's a strange place. This is a strange place. So I think, in a way, I wrote the book to address my own deep love and deep sense of, after living here for 26, 7 years, something like that, deep sense of, like, unrootedness here. And um, I think it was my attempt to address that. Yeah. But, yeah. 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 So, um, it kind of had a sort of waiting for Godot sort of feeling, just being a player, if that's where my mind goes, but does, does Lipschitz actually show up? <laughs> um, no. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is. It is. It is. It isn't. It is a playoff waiting for Godot. Yes. Yeah. And that's why even in the book, there's there's the refrain waiting at Chateau. Um, there's a play. There's a play on that, and I think that you know, maybe this is our contemporary waiting for Godot. Yeah. Yes. Since the book is mostly, or almost all of it, at the Chateau? Yeah. Yeah. Did you do research on If I told you you're not going to believe me, I, I didn't. I walked in there for 15 minutes and, and walked out. <laughs> I'm kidding. No. 
That's the truth. I spent about 15 minutes there. Yeah. But, you know, I felt like I understood what I needed to understand to write the book. Yeah. Why didn't you have a cocktail there? No, I just... I just wanted, I don't know what, what I needed. I may have stayed there for three days if I felt I needed to stay there three days. But I just needed, I need the bones and let my imagination do. I had a few key images that I knew, I think even at the time, that I was going to use these key images. Um, and I didn't want to be overwhelmed by it. I wanted to leave with a, just a basic sense and then let my imagination do the rest of the fleshing out. And that's kind of the way I work with everything. I don't like to do research. I do as little research into everything I write as I can. But I have, you know, I have to do it to a certain extent to be justified in doing it, you know, writing about it. Because it crams you into a program. You can't read their literature. What do they have to say about it? What are, you, know, you can't do any of that. You have to, like, you know, just imagine it for yourself. Yeah, you can. That's the whole work. It's novelist, yeah. But you couldn't have been in Los Angeles for 15 minutes and then gotten a feel of it. <laughs> oh no, of course not. No, it's just a, it's just a place. Yeah, no, I couldn't do that. I had to live here. Yes. So, um, Waiting for Godot is a modernist masterpiece of minimalism. Yeah. And Waiting for Lipschitz is sort of um, a, a verbose trapeze of expanded zest. <laughs> yeah. Um, um, so, uh, do you feel any stylistic impulses? I mean, I like the way that you're playing off the dough. I mean, or do you feel it's just more a philosophic thing? Um, it's not that, it's not meant to be that tight uh, parallel, you know. I wouldn't want to be, mess that up. <laughs> you know, because it is, you know, it's a world-class piece of work. So, I, I first of all, I wouldn't want to, like, make that comparison myself. But I just thought it'd be playful. It's more the playfulness of, you know, the title. I like that, you know, I like the fact that it sounded like it. And I thought this would be fun. You know, Lipschitz doesn't show. And that kind of gave me the sense of the absurdity of Godot. Well, how would you write an absurdity in this day and age in L.A. with this type of narrator? Smart, you know, Los Angeles grew up and went to Fairfax High, you know. He's 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 a Los, he's an Angelino if there ever was well, were one, and so that's the voice he would have in writing this new kind of Godot. Yeah. Hello, Rita. Did you write this in Fresno, or did you start writing? No, I wrote it in Fresno. Um, I had, we had moved there, and Fresno was very cheap. And so I, I thought, shit, I'm in a cheap city, man. I'm going to find myself a nice office, you know. So, but the places I like to go are the places that no one wants to go. I wanted to go where they had these beautiful modernist buildings in the Tower District. Mimi knows it, and because she did research there, and it was this beautiful modernist building, um, very beautiful. Um, now they've renovated it. It was empty. There was there was druggies in the in the hallways. People passed out. You know, it was just a mess. But the building was beautiful, and the rooms were beautiful. I walk in. I've got like seven hundred square feet, floor to ceiling windows. It's just a massive sun. I'm saying, man, I got to be in this place, but I'm, you know, I'm not sure I can do it. 
$300 a month for this place, utilities included. <laughs> well, as a good Armenian, how could I pass that up? So I took the place, I took the place, and I got in there, and it was a mess. You know, sometimes the heating works, sometimes I didn't care. I was loving this. I was loving the light. I was loving the feeling of it. So I wrote it in that place. Yeah. And it didn't take me long to write. It didn't take me long to write. But um, I had a hard time getting someone interested in the book because it's not, you know, it's not a book with a traditional plot and all that stuff. Yeah, Ray. Yeah. 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 So, given that you've got some sections in there or some opinions in there yeah. that are going to be kind of fired, yeah. how did you go about making the decisions about the kinds of things that you're going to put in there to narrate that you agree with? Yeah. Well, that's a good question. There's some, the, mostly the racial sections. He goes after, he goes after, um, well, I'll start with Armenians. He goes after Armenians. He goes after, um, uh, who does he go after? He goes after, obviously, African Americans. Um, Latinos get it in the neck. Um, ties. Uh, everybody gets it. Every ethnic group gets it in the throat. Chinese in Monterey Park, they get it in the throat. Everybody gets it. Because he's like, he's like sitting there, he's like, you know, yeah, LA's a great place, it's got all this diversity. But then a part of me is saying, what the fuck, all these people, you know? It's like, sometimes you just get disgusted with all this fucking diversity, right? <laughs> Basically, that's what he's thinking. And who doesn't? So what I wanted to do was not do what you're supposed to do, which have this, like, programmatic, little stylized liberal, you know? I wanted, I wanted someone who, like, felt it all. And so if I made the decision that, yeah, he's, he's pissed off, he's in a kind of crisis mode, he's going to have extreme views, let's let it rip. Now, that was a hard choice for me because, you know, I know the consequences of writing that kind of thing. But, you know, if you don't have the guts to do it, then what, just be a banker. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, really, honestly, I think at my point, I've had not a lot of commercial success as a writer. Um, I've written the kind of books I want. And if I can't just do what I want, hang up. You know, if my family depended on making a living at it, maybe I'd think differently. But I have nothing to lose at this point, except just writing it the way I want to write it. Yeah. Most importantly, are you writing the screenplay? <laughs> no, you know, some people, I don't see it as a screenplay, but some people are telling me it is. And, you know, I don't know. We'll let Hollywood take care of that. I'm certainly not going to get sucked into the light of the lantern. <laughs> you know? Because that's really, really, that is true. You know, anywhere near, is it going to be a screenplay? I mean, that's the whole weirdness of the book. It's alluding to that already. Yeah, John. Well, my. Uh the reason I find your racial s stuff so impressive is that the typical racial stuff that people get is if it's a conservative being racist, then everybody's like, oh yeah, of course, yeah, oh, of course they're like this. But the racism in the book, I think, is basically the type of, the type of racism I saw when I lived in LA from liberals was a very sophisticated sort of racism that 
they could kind of obfuscate it a little bit. And so I think the important thing you're doing here is pointing out what, what's going to be so controversial is not the racism, it's that there's a liberal who's having some racist thoughts. Yeah, so, that's true. That is, you're right, absolutely. So I think yeah. that's what's going to be considered so transgressive yeah. about it. Yeah. Is that most people who are in the literary world are liberals and they don't have any problems saying, oh, well, there's, here's a conservative guy who's really racist. Yeah, some, some hick in Alabama. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He, the author did a great job of portraying the racism of those white people back there. Yeah. Yeah, they, they would. But when, when it's one of us, you know, it's like, well, how can you say that? You, the narrator must be a... No, the author must be a racist, you see. That's where that goes. It's a stereotype. I, the words, the racist, the word racism is the wrong word. Yeah. Yeah, I don't even think he's racist. I think it's just bullshit. But that may be what gets traction in terms of the critique of it. I agree with you, Vincent. I don't think it is racist at all. But, you know, and you guys are sitting here going, what the fuck are you talking about? I didn't, I didn't hear anything racist. Sorry about that. You know, it's just, I didn't bring it up. Someone else did. You have to buy it to read it. Yeah, you have to buy it to read it in that part of it. Yeah, yeah. So thank you, everybody, for coming out, my friends and family, well-wishers, people off the street. Thank you so much for coming. You got it. So great. <laughs> Thank you. Here's guys. Thanks, man. Thank you. Um, one more round of applause uh, for Eris. Thank you, everybody. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.